Well, good morning. Uh, please turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. Uh, there are Bibles where you're seated. I think it's somewhere around 544. The print is very small, so we're on a page for a long time. Um, we are going through <clears throat> excuse me, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, after this, we have two more um, passages that we'll look at. Uh, throughout the Gospel of Mark, Mark is, is asking the question of, of who is Jesus and really explaining who this Jesus is. And then with that also comes a question of who are you and what is your responsibility. So as we begin to look at this passage, this is the description of the um, crucifixion and death and burial of Jesus. Uh, this is what, as Christians, this is what we focus on. Uh, without the death and resurrection of Jesus, there is no, or without the death and burial of Jesus, there's no resurrection to new life. So as we look at this, this is more of a somber passage as we look at the death of Jesus, but it's very significant. And if we're honest with ourselves, death is something that we just try to ignore. And in our life, it's all of our end. We're all going to die someday. I hope that's not a shock. Everyone's going to die, but we treat it as something we, we, just, we don't want to talk about. It. We're just going to leave it to the future, and we're going to leave it to the way far future. It's because we don't want to have to deal with it. But as we look at this passage, we'll look at how the, the soldiers were uh, offended by Jesus. And we'll look at the significance of the death in Jesus and really answer the question, what dies with Jesus? So please follow along. I'll begin at verse 21 and read through the passage, or read through the chapter. Uh, Mark 15, starting at verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself. Come down from the cross. And so also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled the sponge with sour wine. And they put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. 
Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that, saw that in the way he was breathing his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. When evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage, went to Pilate, and asked him for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have died, or he should have already died, and summoned the centurion, and he asked him whether he was already dead. When he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapping him in the linen shroud and laying him in a tomb that had been cut out of a rock, he rolled away a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Let's pray. Lord, you are the great and almighty God. And as we look at this passage, it draws a lot of confusion um, because we don't understand how the eternal Son of God uh, sacrificed his life for us. And as we pray, as we look through this, that your Holy Spirit would guide us, shepherd us, that we would understand uh, the significance of the death of Jesus and the glory of his resurrection. Uh, In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. As we look at this passage, we see how the soldiers and the uh, centurion, or the centurion soldiers and the scribes, how people look at the death of Jesus and how they try to wrestle with it a little way in their life. And mostly they just want to ignore it. Uh, just like we try to do with death, we want to ignore it. We want to focus on something else that's a little more happy, a little more joyful, a little more substantial and significant in our life. As we begin in this chapter, we read about how the soldiers, they craved for something uh, that was not offered. They crucified him and divided his garments. Uh, The soldiers' eyes, what was significant of this crucifixion was that there's cloth, there's garments. This is the significance of the death of Jesus for them. It was just what they could put on and what they could take. It was their immediate felt need. How could this improve their life? And immediately it was the garments. It was so significant. And they obviously want to be fair, like we all do as we scramble for significance. Let's gamble for them. Let's cast lots. But really, what is Jesus offering in his death? We are such consumers that we try to fix our own insecurities and we heal our shame and guilt with so many things except for what is really going to change us. That's just what the soldiers are doing. 
We fight over clothes when the real hope is on the cross. We battle this way because we don't want to admit that we need anything more than a different job, a better schedule, more education, maybe shifting priorities. And we think if we just spend some time doing that, our life is going to change. It's going to be better. We're going to heal something inside of us that we just try to ignore and hide from. That a different job, a different marriage, having more kids, sending your kids off to college, having a better career, having more education, that that's going to fix something inside of you that's broken. And it's not. But we fight so much because that's how we want to fix things. It's much easier, much manageable, much more manageable. So if you think of, I know that life as a treadmill, that's an analogy that's used for many things. And so I'm going to use it here because it's all, it's common. But I think it, it sort of speaks to where we are as people. I think there's a stage in your life where you're about to get on the treadmill of life. And you think uh, you have a goal, you have a plan. And maybe this is probably is hitting you somewhere in the high school age, maybe even younger. That you, you start to think about what you want to do for your career and how you are going to make an impact and you are going to change the world. So you start to look at this treadmill and you think, oh, I need a good education. I need to marry the right person. I need to do all these things, and that's going to make my life significant. And we're starting to develop that, pr- that plan of our life. Or many of you, and I think this might fit more of a category of people here, that we are on this treadmill of life, and things are going extremely fast, and we are just trying to keep up. We're trying to keep up with what's going on. We know that to be promoted in our job, we have to work harder. So to work harder, we sacrifice other things that are significant. We just want to survive. And really, you're trying to feed your identity. You want to prove your value and your worth. And you and I will wear ourselves out because we think this is life. We think there's no other way to do this. We look around and see this is life. We have to earn everything we get. And then there's some on the treadmill who have either jumped off or fallen off. You have given up. You've realized that uh, you are not going to be the best. You are not going to be number one. And you've jumped off the treadmill. Some of you do it in a good way of realizing, I am not going to uh, create my life around priorities that other people are giving me. But then there are some of you um, who have fallen off this treadmill because of brokenness and the hurt that you have in your life. And as you give up, you really give up on parts of your life because you feel like you just can't deal with it. You give up on fighting. You realize you'll never be the best. You realize that your view of success is probably an impersonal view of success. It is the cloth that the soldiers are arguing over. That in the end, someone's going to argue over that cloth when you die. And that is it. We're like the soldiers that we look to fill our felt needs of loneliness, of hurt, 
of insignificance, of guilt, and of shame with everything we can instead of looking at the true source of our problem. Then the next section in 29 through 33, it talks about the the accusers and how they use actually Jesus' words and they twist them and they twist his meaning to prove, at least in their mind, that Jesus is not worth it. And if we're honest with ourselves, there are parts of us that have that. And you are here today. We've all gone through this season of, I'm going to devote my life to be the best person. And I'm going to take Jesus along. Because it really can't hurt. I mean, church is full of good people. And statistically, you're going to be a harder worker if you go to church. You're going to be more devoted to your family. Your marriage is going to be better. So statistically, you want to win. So you think, I'm just going to take Jesus with me. And I'll use all the things Jesus says. And really, you're taking them out of context because you don't understand the death and burial and resurrection and how that changes everything. Many times, it's our faulty expectations. And then what happens is we take Jesus as an addition on our life and then our expectations of life are not met. And then who are we blaming on? Jesus. So really, he's a great scapegoat. We can take him if things are going well. We can say, well, it's because I'm, I have Jesus with me. If things go bad, then quietly under your breath you say, it's his fault. He did it. I'm a success. He's the one who's not. With that view, you really don't understand the gospel. Because you're trying to add on to your life something that is made to transform and change your life. Look at the words that they twist from Jesus. In verse 29 it says, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. This is Jesus being a prophet. And they're twisting it to mock him. And they say he saved others in verse 30. He cannot even save himself. Jesus is the priest. He's the great sacrifice. And they twist it. And he is king. If he is the king, then let him come down from the cross and save himself. So they use these categories, prophet, priest, and king, which Jesus has described as, but they use them in a way to hurt and destroy him. They're really using it in a way to say, you are not any of these things. His accusers are getting at his identity. You are not any of these things. And what's most hurtful in your life? In relationships, when people say things, it's when they address your identity. And, but sometimes that happens is that we say, I'm a lousy artist, so I can use this example. <laughs> I'm lousy a lot of things, but art, oh, man. But let me tell you a story. I was in an art show once. This is not in my notes, but I'll tell you the story because you will get to mock me. Um, I was in junior high. I think it might have been in high school, and we were in an art class. I'm just loud. I can't picture and draw stuff. And somewhat, the teacher, she excused the class, and then she said, oh, hold on, hold on. All these artworks are going to the art show at the mall. If they're yours, come write your name on them. So I realized half the people have left. I'd like to be in an art show. <laughs> so I went, and I wrote my name 
on these artworks. <laughs> so I was an art show at the mall. Um, but what happened was, I wrote on some of my friends' artwork, obviously. <laughs> and they said, once they found it, they were a little livid. Because they were very impressed by their work. It was significant. Wasn't significant to me. I didn't really care. It was just an opportunity. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, let's cut that out of the tape. That really didn't have anything to do with anything. Um, but, but what happens is if we find our identity in something and people start to chip away at it, and it's something like being a great artist, being a great musician, being, being a great pastor, and people start to chip away at it, they chip away at roles that we have. But we treat them as our identity. We think, if I'm not an artist, I'm nothing. And this happens in ministry a lot. If I'm not a good pastor, I'm nothing. If I can't meet your needs, I'm nothing. But the reality is, those things are not called to be our identity. But we create those things to, to hold our value. And when they're chipped away at, we begin to feel guilt and shame and insignificance instead of really going to the heart of who we are and what we're made for. So the accusers of Jesus really are not satisfied with the roles that Jesus plays. To them, those aren't important. Even though Jesus is the eternal Son of God, prophet, priest, and king, they just mock him for it. They say, Jesus, that does nothing for me. There's no value in that for me. So what is really offered in the death of Jesus? C.S. Lewis uses the term, the great exchange, to return to refer uh, to what is offered in the death and resurrection of Christ. And what does he exchange that he has for what we have? His holiness, his righteousness, his perfection. He takes our sin and our insecurity and our shame and our guilt, and he lets us hold on to his righteousness, his perfection, his holiness. It is the king given for his subjects. The eternal one is forsaken so that we will never be. The giver and creator of life is released unto death. It's our sin for his righteousness, our pain for his comfort, our loneliness for his security. Jesus takes our sin and our guilt and he gives us eternal peace but he gives us eternal peace by being the forsaken one. We all have uh, shame and guilt in our life. Um, It's interesting reading about these two things. Uh, Many times we feel guilty because of something we should have done or we did and we should not have done, and we feel a sense of guilt. Uh, But shame is a deeper problem. Many times you can't pinpoint why you feel shame. You might be able to say, you know, this thing happened when you're a kid and you just feel this heaviness of shame. And if you ever felt it around a person where you're around someone and you just feel 
ashamed. And you think in your head, I, I don't think I did anything. I don't know what's wrong. But you feel this shame that you're not worthy, that you can't be there. And it might be that person trying to project it on you. And it might also be you not understanding what the death of Jesus did for you. He took your shame and your guilt. Many times we talk about the death of Christ and we purely talk about our acts of sin. That Jesus took our acts of sin and paid the penalty. But he also took the guilt of our sin. And he also took the shame that we live with. And he took that. And he didn't take it in an impersonal way, like in luggage. He took it on himself. Beaten near death. Stripped, mocked, and abused. Hung on a cross until he dies. That's the shame that he took on that is your shame. And so when Jesus died, he died with your shame. He died with your guilt so you can be set free. This is the story of the Bible. In Genesis, it begins with Adam and Eve before the fall, that there was no shame. Man and woman, they were both naked and they were unashamed. Sin enters the world because of disobedience. And after, they feel shame. And what do they do? They hide their shame. They say, I'm going to do all these things, I'm going to hide from my shame, because I don't want to feel anymore. And that's what we do. If I'm successful in business, if I'm a great pastor, if I'm a great husband, or whatever it is, then I shouldn't have to feel shame, because look how much I'm doing. But it doesn't take our shame. And then Revelation 19, our shame is gone. It's the final wedding feast where um, Jesus is clothed with righteousness. And we are his, not because of our fight to not be shameful, but because of his grace that he bestows on weak, insecure, shame-laden, guilt-laden people like you and me. And he takes us as his own and he sits us and he is proud to call us his not because we fight against shame well but because we rest in him and say I don't have any weapons to fight against my shame I don't have any weapons to fight against my guilt all I have is God's covenant promise So where does shame and insecurity go to die? It dies on the cross. Nowhere else. Nothing else can kill or deal with your shame. Your insecurity, your false understanding of identity, nothing can kill it except the cross. A personal God who died for you personally. For your sin and your guilt. He took the shame that we can't even define or explain and he took it to its death. That it is no more. Uh, In Isaiah 54, it it talks about uh, the barren woman. And the the first verse, it 
explains that uh, the barren woman has no child and will never have a child in this passage. But she rejoices more than those who have many. You, you see that? It's not that her shame is fixed by having children. This is how her shame is fixed in the Bible. This is verse 4. It says, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. This is what fights our shame. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. So what fights your shame and your guilt and striving for clothes that cannot help you? What fights that? God alone. The death and resurrection of Jesus. Because your shame and your guilt and your sin have been crucified on that cross and they are no longer yours. You are set free. And this is what's so amazing about this. You are not just set free that you can say, okay, now that I understand what it means to have faith in Christ, I will just forget my past and never think about it or talk about it again. It is gone. You are starting a new history. That's not what it is. It is so great that you can look at your past and say, look what God redeemed. Look what God changed. Look what a mess I was, and look what he has done. Because then you have the opportunity to proclaim true freedom. It's seeing your sin in light of the promises of Christ. Your shame then becomes a story of redemption. What made you unworthy in your view and drove you to consume has now been exchanged for peace. Your sin and your shame and your guilt are taken. And now you have the story of they've been buried, they've been hung on a cross, and next week we'll get to the resurrection. They are, they are transformed into new life. So you understand what true freedom is. In the death of Jesus, your actual sins are paid for your shame and your guilt and your nakedness is paid for. It is over. You have God's sealed promise in the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that uh, you are the God Almighty And we thank you that you have sent Jesus Christ. You have called us to place our trust in him. And in that trust, you uh, transform us and you make us a new creation. And you rid us of what destroys us. Pray that we would understand that more. We would understand the depth of your forgiveness and the freedom that you provide. We thank you that this is all in uh, the death and resurrection of the eternal Son of God. And in his name we pray.
If you'd please stand, we'll receive the benediction of God blessing and sending his people. And then please stay for the meal. Uh, Though you are blessed, if you do not stay for the meal, um, please do. There'll be enough food to give you some opportunity to meet some people. Um, God is the great uh, eternal God. He's the creator of all things. He's the giver of love and peace and forgiveness. And it is in him alone that we look to for these things. Um, The word of the Lord says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you. Amen.